Last week, we made our way through the, the introduction to Colossians. Um, and from uh, date, author, occasion, uh, we jumped right into the first eight verses. And uh, we saw five things. There were five things that I drew out of those eight verses. <clears throat> first, if you, if you, uh-oh. If you recall correctly, I said, because Paul prays that the Colossians would have grace and peace, I said there's an insinuation there that God wants us to have grace and peace, which means that he desires to give you unmerited favor and he desires that you enjoy quietness, rest, and and to be set whole again. That's the heart of God towards you whatever your heart is towards him, this side of eternity. Um, He says specifically that he doesn't take any joy or delight in the death of the unrighteous, but desires that all people everywhere would repent. So you can wait him out and perish in your sin, but just know that every day that goes by, The desire of God for you is grace and peace. Second, you can't have grace and peace with God without faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so, So any effort to enjoy grace and peace apart from faith in Jesus Christ is vanity. And that's been our experience, right? I don't know how far into life you made it before you finally bent the knee to King Jesus, but we've all experienced this reality where the things that bring joy and vitality to us in a moment, when we go back to them later, the, the, the effect is reduced and our metabolism is increased. So real grace and peace is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Third, <clears throat> I said that hope is the fountainhead of love of the brethren love of the people of God, love of fellow Christians. Um, And and since I didn't last week, I want to be crystal clear that I might be inverting the preposition here. Uh, And can I just confess publicly, uh, Matt and I had coffee, which then turned into lunch with Ryan Johnston on Monday. And he reminded me, Ryan reminded me that he's got a doctorate in uh, expositional preaching. And because I am who I am, I immediately went back in my mind to the sermon the day before and was like, I mean, that wasn't really expositional. I, there was a bit of eisegesis in there. So anyway, this is me <clears throat> shoring up loose ends. Yes. Uh, when Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you could interpret that reasonably two different ways. First, you could interpret it like this. We thank God because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because the way the language flows, where that preposition should be attached is difficult to say. When you move things from the Greek to English, it it gets difficult. Not that I'm a Greek scholar, peace. Or, so you could say, we thank God because of the hope. I thank God because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Or we could say, you love the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Either one is true. 
I just chose to emphasize the second one, and I'm convinced I made an adequate case for the idea that when you have the hope of the gospel, you will love the brethren. Paul uh, isn't the only one that says this. John, in fact, writes specifically, we love because he first loved us. And so there's no argument there. Fourth, um, that hope is only found in the gospel. So if, if you're analytical and you wanted to graph the points that I made last week, it, it's really, it, we're just ping-ponging back and forth between two realities, right? God's heart towards us, the reality that we experience, God's heart towards us, the reality that we experience. The hope that's only found in the gospel is not dissimilar from saying, as we got to point two, you can't have grace and peace without faith in Jesus Christ, right? So the experience of God's heart toward me is only going to be found in faith in Jesus Christ, which I'm only going to apprehend because I hear and believe the gospel. Do you see how one thing flows to the other? All right, good. Uh, thank you for nodding, even if you weren't paying attention at all. It's very helpful to me. Last week I said something along the lines there that, that there are so many varieties of wishful thinking uh, in humanity. Um, wishful thinking sounds like something somebody that grew up in the 1970s would say. I'm going to update it so that my millennial and Gen Z audience will appreciate me more. Okay? <laughs> Desire ideation. You like that? That's wishful thinking. It's this idea that as human beings, we have these preferences and desires in our heads and in our hearts, and we fixate on them. And we attach emotional benefit to that desire coming to fruition. Right? So I will be in this better emotional state once this thing happens. And what we do is we call that hope. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get into college. I hope I get this job. I hope this person likes me. And these things are not hope. They're not hope. Not in the way that a Christian has hope laid up for them in heaven. That's different. That's different. The hope that the Christian has pierces even the ultimate catastrophe that awaits all human beings. What's that? Yeah, you're we're, I mean, all things being equal, you're going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, that's where you're headed, death. And the only hope that pierces death is the hope given to those who possess faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it's super simple. There's no hope like that attached to you winning the lottery, attached to you getting that job, attract, uh, you attracting that particular person that you need to attract. That, that's different. That, so I wouldn't even call that hope. I just call it wishful thinking. Because I kind of want to reserve hope for that which I have in the life to come. That's just me. I can't co-opt the English language and just make it say whatever I want. I'm just telling you I think there's a difference. Okay. I don't know why you're so angry at me right now. <laughs> Finally, and fifth, we 
in order to properly appreciate those four points, we worked through the essential gospel. Uh, we got done. I went home. I set my bag full of everything that I haul up here on Sunday morning down, and I didn't even think about the sermon again until I went down, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, to do something else and saw the bag, and I was like, oh, whoops, I never uploaded the sermon. So then I, got, I immediately stopped what I was doing, got the SD card out of the recorder, put it in my computer, moved the file over to my hard drive, opened up Logix to start you know, editing out all the swearing that I do when I'm preaching, and uh, realized that the, the recording was 55 minutes and some odd seconds long, and I was like, well, that's not right. There's no way. So I edited like I normally do, things that needed to be edited out, open space at the beginning, open space at the end, uh, and it was 50 minutes and some odd seconds. I'm like, so that 100% I preached for 50 minutes last week. Um, I was told when I first came to Springfield Baptist, 20 to 30, I think, Lee, isn't that what you said? Yeah, 20 to 30 minutes. Um, so what we've done is we've come in, we've taken over, and I'm doing whatever I want. Now, right? uh, but my heart broke because I know some of you got little kids, right? and, and it's tough. Like, it's tough because we don't have a nursery. So this is my commitment to you. I'm going to try to abbreviate, not, not the work of the Spirit of God, but my own uh, monotonous rambling, incoherent babbling, okay? We're going we're gonna to clip that stuff and just try to keep it the essential biblical stuff. You're like, too late. <laughs> I didn't promise that until just now. So, <laughs> Colossians 1, verse 9. So, look at that. What a beautiful picture. I love that picture. Um, so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All right, so that's a mouthful. Those 9, 10, 11, and 12 is Paul's prayer for this church at Colossae, right? And he repeats the idea here that he's already stated earlier that he is praying. So last week it was he, he thanks God for these things concerning the church, right? That they have this love for one another, that they have comprehended the gospel. This week it's a little bit different because he explains exactly what he's been praying for for them, right? So the two things I want you to notice. Number one, I think it's a good idea to let people know that you're praying for them. Um, I went through a season in life there where I was like, ah, oh, that's hypocritical. Shouldn't tell people you're praying for them because it's, it's like you're, you're inviting them to congratulate you, right? Hey, I'm praying for you. Oh, thanks. But Paul routinely, all over in his epistles, lets the recipients know that he's praying for them. And then he doesn't hesitate to let them know what he's praying for them. So, look, if you do this and you're passive aggressive about it, shame on you. 
I'm not saying to be, well, I've been praying for you that you would clean up your mouth or what, like, it's not a time to instruct somebody. It's a time to encourage somebody. So don't hesitate to let people know that you're praying for them. And then don't hesitate to let them know what you're praying for them as long as it's not a, you know, cleverly hidden insult. Um, Second, I, I would like you to notice specifically what Paul prays, because I think these are all good things to pray for one another. Okay, so here we go. We haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a good thing for the church, for individual members to pray for one another to be intelligent and knowledgeable Christians. Our culture, uh, and I, I, oh man, I hope I do a good job of this. I don't try to just come up here and go, the culture's terrible and we're wonderful because I don't really think that I think we're part of the culture right so when I say our culture is whatever what I'm trying to do is say hey this is what this is the bent of our heart because of what's happening around us not we're so much better than them because we don't do that we a thousand percent do this all right our culture is preoccupied with feelings um there's 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 like an over exaggerated interest in feelings and too much authority designated to feelings in our culture. So a meeting at work, and I'm going to try to be more vague so I don't have to edit this stuff out of my sermon. In a meeting at work, um, you know, we were being encouraged uh, to appreciate the differences among our colleagues, which is, I'm all for that. I think that's great. Uh, after a lengthy drama that was put on for grown-ups at work, uh, where multiple people from multiple cultures shared, well, it was really quite moving, these poems about where they were from, right? So I'm from, and they would kind of describe their, their heritage, their history. I, I actually kind of liked it uh, until the presenter, after all that was over with, the presenter came out and he's like, can you feel it? how the energy in this room has changed. And I'm like, yeah, I feel it. Then he says, I want us to stop thinking right now. I want us to stop worrying about being right and just feel curiosity. And I'm like, okay. If I ascribe the most innocent intentions to what this person is doing, which I did, what they're doing is trying to engage that which is predominant in this group, right? So we live in a day and age where everybody is predominantly interested in how they feel. So I get what he's trying to do. I just want you to like, just feel, because it was positive. It was a good thing in his view that was going on in that room. And he wanted everybody to stay engaged with that. That's the best intention I can ascribe. And I don't think this person was an idiot. I just think what he asked of us was idiotic. There's a difference. I'm not smarter than him. I just know better than to stop thinking. Anytime somebody is encouraging the disengagement of your mind, please grow suspicious. In many churches, feelings are elevated to gospel status because they can be blamed on the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. In many churches, feelings 
are elevated to gospel, equivalent to gospel status, because they can be blamed on the Holy Spirit. Do I need to give you an example? Okay, I will, because nobody said yes or no. Uh, I feel like God is telling me to let you know, fill in the blank. Now, who are you to argue with what I feel like God is telling me to let you know? Worship, then, is designed not only to engage the emotions of the church in 2023, but in some sense to disengage the mind. So there's this, like we just did it, like there's some repetition in what we sing. It's designed to be instructive. I've listen to a lot of worship that's out there right now and it's it's repetitive to the point of trying to like get you into a trance-like state so that then the soft-spoken speaker can come out and give a homily that's loosely related to Christianity but you're in such a frenzied state emotionally just so enraptured with the beauty of Jesus that it almost doesn't matter what the person comes out and says Be careful about that. Now, I am deeply interested in your feelings. And I think my preaching is a reflection of that, right? Okay. But I'm also, I hope, at least as equally interested in your mind, in your intellect. So when Peter hears Jesus predict that that Jesus is going to die, Right. Jesus is like, hey, look, fellas, the Son of Man, I know we just came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, but I need you to know the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and, and crucified. Peter does not like what he hears, and so he takes Jesus aside and gives him a stern talking to. Don't you talk like that, Jesus. You are not going to be taken and crucified what does Jesus say in response to Peter? I know we all know the good thing behind me, Satan, right? But don't fixate on that. What, what Jesus does lovingly, uh, um, emotionally with Peter is he says, Peter, you are not setting your mind on God's things, but on man's, Right? So in this highly emotional moment where Peter's just like, you're going to be taken and put to death. What? Jesus, come here. What are you doing? These guys are trying to follow you and you're over here talking about, oh, I'm going to get delivered over. to Come on. Let's not, let's not be ridiculous. And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Luke 24, 32, beautiful moment these two disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus right and they're like this because Jesus has been killed and so they're sad understandably Jesus rolls up with them and he's like what's going on guys and they're like are you the only one from Jerusalem who hasn't heard what happened and so they explain it to Jesus and Jesus says oh you slow of heart and mind to understand. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things in scripture concerning himself. Now, what was the problem with the two guys on the road to Emmaus? They were discouraged. They were downcast. Their hearts were broken. They were emotionally broken. And what does Jesus do to fix it? 
He explains to them the scriptures. He goes to their minds and seeks to fill their minds with the truth and the right information. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, listen, fellas, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and per perfect. So, I'm not, I'm not saying emotions have no place. I'm just saying they shouldn't be out front. They shouldn't, like they need to be the caboose. You need them, but they shouldn't be, lead, don't be led by your emotions. Be led by what you know is true. Paul wrote, and I pressed this point home last week and again already this morning, that the Colossians have this profound love for one another. Um, they have this, I like to call it, pathos because we don't really have a word that encapsulates everything that brotherly love is describing really biblically. So I like to call it pathos because it's Greek and it makes me sound smart, right? Peace. Um, we have this pathos peace in this church where we love one another. I really, I really think we do. Um, it's a good thing, right? And, and I've commended you for it and you guys have nodded and you've been like, that's right, we love each other and nothing's gonna change that, but don't miss this. Here's what'll change that. You stop letting your mind be filled with the knowledge of God and the love for one another will certainly peter out. We should, as a church, pray that God will fill us with knowledge that our intellects would be, would, would like, set the pace of our emotions. I also pray that God doesn't allow us to become heartless. Uh, and it's a difficult balance to keep. So prayer is surely necessary. Amen? Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There it is again. So right thinking of necessity leads to right conduct. Paul prays that they will walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. So here's what I want us to pray for one another. I want us to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. What that means is when people watch us live our lives, there will not be such a huge disparity between the way Jesus really is and the way we really are. Now, will there be a disparity? Yeah, why? Because I'm not Jesus. But I want to walk in a way that's worthy of him, not perfectly, but really, right? Um, fully pleasing to him, which means we can walk in imperfection and still be fully pleasing to Jesus. We can, nobody's going to call me a heretic. We can walk in imperfection and still be fully pleasing to Jesus. How's that? Well, because as we walk in imperfection, as we keep the light and fire of our love for Jesus alive in our hearts, we're always doing two things believing and repenting. And that's fully pleasing. I mean, didn't Jesus say, hey guys, guess what? Uh, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a thousand righteous persons who need no repentance. 
Paul presents the gospel in such stark terms that by the time he's done, he has to go, listen, don't take it too far. I'm not saying sin more that grace might abound. But that's how good the gospel is. You wouldn't be wrong to conclude that I should sin more that grace may abound, except that Paul said, don't, don't take it that far. But that's how far it goes. But don't take it that far. But bearing fruit in every good work. Should I go back? I'll go back. Paul prays that they'll walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Parents, parents, future parents, grandparents. Oh, that's everybody. Don't miss the flow here. You can't command your child or your children to control their emotions and then suddenly expect them to muster the discipline. Let's say it again. You can't command your children to control their emotions and expect them to suddenly, magically muster the discipline. You've got to pray for their minds. You've got to instruct them, sit with them, and help them to think things through. I'm, it's so hard. Oh, it's so heartbreaking to watch this happen. I have never met a set of parents who was diligently, patiently, lovingly, sitting with their children and teaching their minds the things of God and patiently, diligently, lovingly encouraging their children to walk with Jesus who had children that were going absolutely buck wild. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I've thought I saw it a couple of times. I was like, okay, so there's exceptions. Sometimes no matter what you do, they just go bananas. But in those couple of times where I thought, oh, those are good parents. They're doing it right. You dig a little deeper and you find out, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're commanding their children. But they're not sitting with them, loving them, training them, teaching them, confessing sin with them, being patient with them, putting their arms around them. Now, am I saying that if your kids are wild, it's your fault? No. Believe me when I tell you, moms, and I think this applies more so to dads. Do you pray for your children's minds enough? Do you take the hours necessary to patiently, lovingly teach them how to reason? Now, it's your own kid's fault if they're going buck wild. It's their own fault. They're going to give an account to God. The same character of God is written on their hearts. The same gospel has been presented to them. But you bear responsibility if you are cold and loveless and disengaged, simply wielding the silver sword around the house so that everybody bends to your will, Dad. You teach them nothing of grace. And then you wonder why they reject your gospel. You reap the whirlwind when they act on every whim and desire later in life. And the tears that you shed in regret over the moments that have been lost will be unquenchable. Unless God in mercy brings your little one, who's probably now grown, to the end of themselves, to the foot of the cross, 
Now, I have just whipped some of you worse than, than you deserve to be whipped. So let me say this too. I know things now at 43. I did not know at 25 when our first kid came along, 26, going on 26. I know things now I didn't know at 27 when our second one came along. I know things now I didn't know at 29 when our third one came along. There are disciplines, the spankings that I administered that if I could get in a time machine and go back, I would take those whippings back. Times when I was pretty sure I was doing the right thing, which in retrospect now I look and I go, no, I wasn't. Now, it is a mercy of God. It is always a mercy of God that any of our children are the least bit interested in being around us because we parent in such breathtaking hypocrisy, don't we? So this is not me standing up here beating you because you didn't do a good enough job as a parent. There is grace, free, and sufficient supply to minister to your heart, no matter how bad you screwed them up. And there's grace, free, and a sufficient supply to change their hearts, no matter how bad they're screwed up. What we need is to pray for their intellect Pray for their minds, then for their walk, then that they bear fruit, and then again for their minds. Amen? 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Okay, so where there's spiritual life, where there's spiritual life, there needs to be spiritual mindedness. Amen? We're good. I'll say it again because it's like some of you are really profoundly confused. Where there's spiritual life, there needs to be spiritual mindedness. Okay, good. Um, where there's spiritual mindedness, what he's saying here is there needs to be spiritual strength. Why? Well, it's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to do what's right. A lot of us know what's right and lack the strength to even contemplate doing it, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, so it's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to do what's right. And it's another thing, even, even again, to have the endurance to keep doing what's right. Okay, and then to have patience in the midst of doing what's right is hard. Because people don't just like step aside and go, look, he's doing what's right. Wonderful. No, they oppose you. They don't want you to do that. Uh, and then that makes it difficult to have joy in doing what's right. So let me talk to uh, all of our kids, our children. You ever start the day off, children? I need to use small words. You ever start the day off and you're like, I'm going to be well-behaved today. You wake up, today's the day I'm going to make my bed before I even get out of my room. 
I'm going to pick up all of my dirty clothes. Like whatever the thing is that you do when you get up to show mom and dad you're being obedient, right? So you're, you get up and you're just resolved. I'm going to be well behaved. Um, and, and so you do a few well behaved things. Then you come out to the living room or the kitchen, wherever mom and dad are. And they're just like something's off. Seems like uh, something's going on with mom or dad, right? Like they're trying extra hard today to catch you doing something wrong. That ever happened to you? Like I'm going to be good, but mom and dad are watching you the minute you come out. And, and at, so you got up, you got dressed, you got food, you got busy being obedient and helpful, and then you make a mistake. It, you weren't even trying to sin. You just made a mistake and they're, man, they're right there. They catch you. They see it. And they're like, uh, you always do this. And you're like, but today I wasn't going to. Today I was going to nail it. They immediately notice the mistake, but they don't notice how good you were doing up to that point. <laughs> so I think my mom... She could smell it. I'd get up, resolved, I'm really going to nail it. Just fully commit myself to being as obedient as possible. Uh, there, it'd be the same day she decided to be super attentive. <laughs> Every little misstep got magnified. Every mistake got noticed. Listen, it's the same way when you grow up. This doesn't change. You'll get up, read your Bible. I'm doing it, God. I'm gonna spend, you spend time in prayer. You're going, to, you're going to be, I'm going to grow spiritually. I really want to commit to walking worthy of Jesus. And then that's the day traffic is a nightmare. That's the day your kids really test your patience. That's the day the car breaks down. That's the day your boss is super critical for whatever reason. So your resolve begins to devolve and you stumble. We need strength to accomplish walking in a manner worthy of Jesus. Amen? We need endurance to keep accomplishing walking in a manner worthy of Jesus. Then we need patience as we're walking in a manner worthy of Jesus. And we've got to walk. We've got to walk that walk with joy because here's the most important part. I think we should pray for one another. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. My joy, my peace, my salvation, none of that is dependent on me qualifying myself. God the Father has qualified me. Did you see it? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So I thank God for your joy, your peace, your endurance, your strength. It's not dependent on you. So kids, qualify means uh, like to make enough. So if you're going to fly a plane, you have to learn all the controls to fly a plane. If you're going to be an astronaut, you got to learn something about rocket science and physics. If you're going to be a dog trainer, you have to know about a lot of different breeds of dogs and how they behave. If you're going to be a baker, you need to know the difference between a quarter cup and a half cup of flour. If you're going to be a guitar player, you need to own a guitar that qualifies you to play. If you're going to be a good guitar player, well, a decent guitar player, you have to stop growing in eighth grade and need a way to attract girls. 
right? Uh, you get qualified by doing something over and over and over until you're good at it. That's how you get qualified. Listen, we don't make ourselves good enough to share in Jesus's rewards. God makes us enough. He promised Jesus, if Jesus comes and lives and loves us and then dies for our sins, God would make us enough. God qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. Verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So delivered means he rescued us. So we were swimming, right, straight down in the ocean towards the deepest, darkest bottom. That's what we were doing. We were running towards a cliff as fast as we could, full out sprint for the edge of a cliff that was like a five mile drop on the, on, on the other side. We were beating down the gates of hell, trying as hard as we could to get in. And God jumped into the water, snatched us and drug us up to the surface so we didn't you know, accomplish our purpose. He sprinted after us and caught us before we could jump off the edge of that cliff and held us, like held us while we were kicking and cussing his name and trying to bite him and trying to get him to let us go so we could go kill ourselves. God saw us in the throng at, at the gates of hell and he, 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 he rescued us. He stopped us. And he carried our battered, lifeless souls to safety and he breathed life into us and he delivered us. Transferred means he moved us, right? Delivered means he rescued. Transferred means he moved. So he moved us from the place of darkness into a beautiful kingdom and he forgave our sins there. And he made us priests there and he made us sons and daughters. Look at us. <laughs> Look at us. We're not in danger anymore. Spiritually speaking, there are still toils and dangers and snares, but our souls are secure. And then what I want, what I have to know is, and what you have to know is, who would do that for me? Because I know me. Look, I, you're all beautiful. You all look great, right? But you know you. You know you. Who would do that for you? You know what you've done. Who would do that for you? Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus, right? Image of the invisible God. That means Jesus shows us God. We cannot, with our human eyes, which are physical, and you know, half the time they don't even work right to see physical things, we cannot see God because he's spiritual. So God wrapped himself in a human body. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Although he existed 
in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who would rescue me? Who would redeem me? Who would transfer me? Who would adopt me? Well, he's the firstborn of all creation. Which doesn't mean that he's created. That firstborn is a, in ancient times, that meant you were the one that was going to inherit everything when dad died. God's not going to die. So it's, it's language being used by the Bible to tell us that Jesus is the owner, the heir of all creation. It all belongs to him. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So what the Bible wants you to know is, and, and again, you have, to, you have to follow the bouncing ball. You got to follow the logic train until you get to the end. He spoke the earth into existence. He spoke and the skies and the seas separated. He spoke and mountains rose up. He spoke and canyons were carved out of those mountains. He spoke and the waters teemed with life. He spoke and plants and animals sprung up from the dirt. He spoke and we were conceived. We came into being. Jesus did that. Jesus was there in the beginning when everything was spoken into existence. Jesus was there saying, this is good. He was there saying, let us make man in our image. He was there saying, it's not good for man to be alone. He was there saying, who told you you were naked? He was there saying, did you eat from the tree of which I told you not to eat? He was there cursing Satan, killing an animal to make clothes for our parents, ushering them out of the garden. He was there looking on the earth sometime later and realizing in Noah's day that the only intention of every man's heart was only evil continually. He was there telling Noah, build an ark. He was there when the waters came. He was there when the dove went out and returned carrying an olive branch in its mouth. He was there when Abraham stepped out in faith. He was there when Joseph stepped into Egypt. He was there when Moses went to the mountain of God. He was there in a burning bush telling Moses, you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Jesus was there. He was there when the seas parted after Pharaoh hardened his heart and chased the Israelites down. He was there when the Passover lamb was slain. He was there when the people complained. He was there when they entered the land. He was there when David took the throne. He was there when David killed Uriah. He was there when Solomon was born. He was there when David breathed his last breath. He was there for all the kings and tyrants who ruled over Israel. He was there when Israel was no more and there was only a remnant that could be found. He was there one cold night in Bethlehem. He was there crying out with the voice of an infant. He was there when wise men came with their gifts. He was there when the people said, who speaks like this man with authority? He was there healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, calming the seas, casting demons out of Mary of Magdala. He was there bringing Lazarus back to life. He was there calling the disciples to follow him. He was there when they all fled. 
He was there being beaten and mocked. He was there being condemned to death. He was there nailed to a cross. He was there crying out, my God, my God. He was there breathing his last. He was there when his body was buried in a tomb for three days. And he was there on the third morning back in that body rising up victorious over sin and hell and the grave. He was there and he is still there. He is there when you don't know what's going on. He's there when you can't believe how much it hurts. He's there when you feel like giving up. He's there when you feel like you can't come back because you've sinned too much. He's there when you're perplexed and discouraged and heartbroken. He's there when you're excited and vibrant and full of life and everything's going great. He's there when you're surprised by how fast life has flown by. Yeah, he's there. When you get a sense of just how much of a vapor it is. He's there when you lay in bed at night wondering what's going to happen next. He's there. He's there when you can't pay the bills, when you can't figure out your marriage. He's there when the divorce is over. He's there when it seems like nobody is there. When you can't figure out your kids, you can't please your parents. He's there when your best friend moves away. He's there when you stumble and fall. He's there when you run headlong into sin, knowing full well what you're doing. He's there when your mom dies, when your dad dies, when your husband dies, when your wife dies. He's there when divorce, cancer, mental illness, unemployment, recession, or depression happen. He's there when you think nobody understands what you're going through and you want to know what he's doing. Colossians 1.16 all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's holding it all together. And sometimes you want to go, what? It's all falling apart. No, it's not. No, it's not. Let that, let that knowledge flow through your battered heart that Jesus Christ, who was there when it was all created, is there with you right now, holding it all together. You are not alone. Your life is not pointless. You are not worthless. And you know it's true. You know why? Because the same Jesus who spoke the earth into motion came into this world to redeem you from your sin. The same Jesus who redeemed you is now holding you. If he's holding all things together, he's holding your heart together. If he's holding all things together, he's holding your mind together. He's holding your physical body together. And I know, brothers and sisters, I get it, right? Like, he could do a better job. Ow. No, 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 no. <laughs> He's doing a great job. Paul cried out three times that the thorn of the flesh might depart. And you know what God said? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. He's holding you together. Just like he holds the whole world. The best news of all is that nobody... John 10, John 17, nobody can snatch you out of the grip of his grace. 
you're going to be okay. Not even you can snatch you out of the grip of grace. Let's pray.